Simmons Catfish calls the Mississippi Delta home. I'm Harry Simmons, and I've been farming catfish since 1976. Get him talking catfish, and he'll speak of the quality of what his family raises and the loyalty of customers. But what he really gets excited about is the opportunity his company offers his community. Most of my management, upper management, and people working at this plant, I went to high school with. So we all like this community. We like Yazoo County and Humphreys County, Yazoo City and Belzona and Louise. We're the largest employer in Yazoo County. That's what I'm proud of, that people that wanted to stay in this community could, where a lot of the communities in the Delta are struggling to keep their population. The next time you crave catfish, baked, fried, or in a stew, look for Simmons Farm-Raised Catfish, a driver of the Delta economy. A list of vendors is online at simmonscatfish.com. For their commitment to quality catfish, their belief in the Delta, and their support of this podcast, we thank them. Literature. Elide the syllables. Stretch them out long and proper. And you sound elitist, stuffy, boring. But great literature doesn't need to bear those burdens. Read novelist Robert Guy, or better yet, listen to him like you're about to, and you hear big ideas shared in a story about family and food in Appalachia. You'll laugh, you'll cry, we promise. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South told through the foods we eat. We're a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm John T. Edge, your host. Tickets for our fall symposium focused on food and literature and featuring Mirwan Irani of Chaipani in Asheville, North Carolina, and Mashama Bailey of The Gray in Savannah are on sale now. Dates are October 11 through 13. Join us in Oxford. And now, Robert Geit. Comfort Food by Robert Geit. My mother sat in the front seat of an Oldsmobile Alero in the carport of my great-granny Cora's brick house on the Long Ridge Trail at the crest of Long Mountain looking out over Blue Bear Valley in the town of Kennard a mountain community of rich heritage and crowded court docket. My mother cried her eyes out, beat her hands against the Alero steering wheel, stopped every few minutes to scream. I was in the kitchen, looking out the window over the sink, across the patio through the big fat mint and basil and rosemary I had growing in concrete planters, lining the edge of the cement slab of the carport. I was 16 years old, and my skin was spotty, and I was bony, and I had on an apron with Do Not Mess With The Chef, She Does Not Care To Knife You, silkscreened in gothic letters my mother had made me in a class at the community college. My mother cried because she thought I was going to leave her. She cried because she was worried I was not safe. She worried what her only child was was a thoughtless, shameless heathen about to kill herself on a lake many counties away, on a jet ski owned by a drug dealer from Hazard, knocked up and high on heroin. She was worried about these things, not because I was doing any of them, 
but because I put gorgonzola in the macaroni and cheese. It tastes like ass, Nicolette, my mother said, after she spit the first mouthful into her hand. She threw the only protein she'd still eat to the floor and wiped her hand on her hoodie and stomped out the storm door. Like goat's ass, she said from the patio. She slammed the Alero door and put Pat Benatar on the stereo and shoved barbecued potato chips in her mouth. I knew the gorgonzola was a risk. My mother depends on macaroni and cheese. She has depended on macaroni and cheese since 2004, the year her mother and grandmother and best friend all three died the same July. Her best friend was a confidential informant who died driving drunk home from Dollywood trying to get a tape of somebody talking about their drug deals when her tape player messed up and she flipped her truck trying to fix it. Mama's mama died from an overdose when the Tennessee man shooting her up put too much in the needle and when he seen what he done he dumped my grandmother's body by the river like she's a bag of garbage. Granny Cora who raised my mother, was the one made my mother go to school, took her with her to her anti-strip mining meetings and visiting people in the hospital and sitting up with people at their houses when they were blue from losing their jobs or their husbands losing their jobs. Mama and Granny Cora set up with people scared of getting robbed by druggies or their check getting cut off or bad ex-husbands or shitty ex-boyfriends showing up or cops serving warrants, or landlords wanting sex for rent, or irate nephews-in-laws demanding to see nieces hidden upstairs bedrooms. Granny Cora would go to all them people and take my mama with her. Granny Cora didn't make the macaroni, though. She didn't cook much at all, but what she would do is to take a brownie pie to people when the emergency wasn't too time-sensitive, and she had time to make it. Granny Cora loved sweet stuff. She'd take brownie pie. Granny Cora was the one drug my mom through the mountains and named all the wildflowers and plants to her and showed her how to know the trees, not just by their leaves, but by their bark, too. And that stuff didn't much stick with Mama. The names of things wasn't her thing. But she sure knew after her daddy got crushed by a piece of mine machinery run by man out of his head on drugs, and after her mom crawled up in a liquor bottle and then got her life ended with the push of a syringe plunger, that her granny Cora cared about her and would be there for her until she wasn't, until she died in a cave where she took me and mama to talk about what we were going to do about mama's mama and wade in the water of underground lakes. The only time my mother ever let her mother-in-law in Tennessee be nice to her was right after them three died. My father's mother was named Dorothy Bilson. She had a big, bright smile, bright like Christmas toys under the tree, and she smiled at a lot, thought you could solve most problems with the bright smile, and sometimes, not for me, but for Mama, Dot's smile was too much. I called my grandmother Bilson Dot. Dot always had me sitting next to her. I always thought what I did was the best. I always thought she knew what was best for me which also sometimes got to be a lot for Mama. Dot lived in Tennessee in a big house on a street full of hundred-foot trees in Kingsport, a factory town where she grew up her whole life. 
Her husband worked in the factory and died of cancer when I was real little, and Dot was alone like that for years and years, which makes her sad, but also gave her lots of time to worry about her only son, my daddy, Willett Bilson, which also wore on Mama. Dot was all the time saying she would love for us to move in with her, that that would suit her fine, and me and Daddy, we stayed there from time to time, and a lot of my growing up, I went to school in Tennessee, at the same city school in Kingsport where Daddy'd gone. We lived on the edge of town with Mama mostly, in a trailer by a creek with a bunch of other trailers. Us living in a trailer park was not Dot's favorite thing we did, and she let me know from the time I was little that it made her nervous and that she would worry a lot less if my daddy would let her help us find a place closer to her and her giant tree-lined street with its school-sized houses and its truck-tire-sized Christmas wreaths made of real tree branches in every window with big red bows on them. Mama went when she had to to Dot's house, but they didn't hang out, and they didn't chit-chat on the phone by the hour, like sometimes Dot did with others. But when Mama lost all them people, she let Dot put her up in her quiet, quiet house with its good thick walls and its ancient creaky beds, and she let Dot feed her, which is where the macaroni and cheese comes in. Dot liked to feed us, but she didn't much like to cook, but she did cook. And she used lots of butter and lots of cheddar cheese, pre-shredded, and Ziploc bags. And she fixed lots of Pyrex dish stuff from recipes she got off her friends and relations at book club and bridge club and Christmas parties and 4th of July parties. And so her refrigerator always had at least 15 sticks of butter in it and both crisper drawers crammed full of bag cheese. Sometimes all that butter and cheese ended up Dot's cooking kind of heavy and sometimes wound all of us up in the bathroom, which Dot's house had many of. But all that butter and cheese worked out perfect when it came to Dot's macaroni and cheese, which she prepared in layers and baked crispy brown on top, and which tasted even better the next day out of the microwave. It was simple and pure, and one of the first things I learned to fix when I started cooking. And simple as it was, Mama acted like it was magic and made me make it for her. Mama said she liked my macaroni way better than Dot's. When Mama came to stay at Dot's in her sadness, she wasn't talking, which not talking was something she sometimes did. But that was the start of Mama going days when you couldn't even get her talking by provoking her. You could say her music sucked or make fun of her hair, and she wouldn't even look at you. In them days, she'd stay in the bed even when she wasn't sleeping. She just rolled over and faced the wall in this old bed daddy's great-great-grandpa made. And she did that straight through Christmas and New Year's. And all she'd eat was a saltine cracker. One saltine cracker and nibble it like a rabbit, staring off into something a thousand miles inside her mind. When she did finally come out, it was almost Valentine's. And me and Daddy were sitting at the little table in Dot's kitchen, the one with all the family pictures under glass. And we were eating ham and green beans and macaroni and cheese. And Mama come sit down in a Molly Hatchet t-shirt and her foghorn leghorn pajama pants. And she ate three quarters of a Pyrex of that macaroni and cheese. And Dot rustled out another Pyrex and started making another one. And for about two weeks... There was always macaroni and cheese fixed in Dot's refrigerator 
and Mama was always eating it. And Mama gradually started coming back to herself, and things got decently normal until I was in fourth grade. We were living in Kentucky then, and I was going to the Pine Knot School in Kennard County. That year they had a contest at Pine Knot School, and every person in my grade had to dress up like an important product of the state of Kentucky. That year Mama was involved in what I was doing in school. Me and her were sitting in the front seat of her Sentra in the dollar store parking lot when I told her about the contest. She thought for about a minute and said, I think you ought to be a bag of Grippos. And she said, what do you think? And I saw how happy her face looked, so I said, that was fine with me. So she went in the dollar store and got a bag of Grippos barbecue potato chips and come out and sat in the car and crinkled the bag in her hands and turned it over and over. Then she went back in the dollar store and got glitter paint and white spray paint and a pack of markers. And we went down to the Sears store at the old mall and found a nice refrigerator box, which she used a big long piece of plastic wrap to strap to the top of the Sentra. And she brought me back to the house, and we spread out a painter's drop cloth, and then that cardboard in the carport, and had me lay down on it. And she stared at me and pondered. And then she had me slip inside the box like it was a sleeping bag. And then she told me, get out of there. And she spray-painted the whole box white. Then she sketched out with a pencil that whole Grippo's bag onto the refrigerator box. She got that little dude with the skillet and the barbecue grill and the cursive Grippo letters just right. Then she took out the masking tape and mask stuff before she got with it with the glitter paint. Once she got it painted, she took the masking tape and used a big fat marker to put the black line in and all the fine print on front and back sides. And when she got done, I looked down inside her giant cardboard Grippo's bag. Sure, there were going to be giant potato chips inside. That's how good it looked. The whole thing was perfect. When I got to school the next day, there were 17 kids in my fourth grade class, and 14 of them had dressed up as pieces of coal. One girl who lived with her big sister dressed up as a bag of pot. The other boy was strapped in a wheelchair and didn't know they were having the great products of Kentucky Costume Day. So I was pretty sure I was going to win that contest, especially after they sent the bag of pot girl home. Mama, who came with me to school, was sure I was going to win too and brought six yellow dollar store bags full of little bags of Grippos so she could give one to every person in class, all the students and the teacher and the teacher's aide and everybody else their own bag of potato chips when I won that contest. They had two assistant principals and one of the sixth grade teachers, judges. And when this one lump of coal, not even the best lump of coal, he had gaps in his paint job on the half-wadded newspaper they'd used to make the coal, one mama went ape shit. She said, that right there is fucking bullshit, loud enough for all of them to hear it. And when she asked how in the hell a wad of black newspaper could win over her daughter's beautiful and totally creative homemade potato chip bag, one of the assistant principals said, Ma'am, Grippos are not a Kentucky product. They come from Cincinnati. And Mama said, What the hell are you talking about? And I turned around and bent over and showed Mama the fine print on my butt said, Grippos come from Cincinnati. 
Mama said, bullshit. My aunt sent grippos every week to her son in Iraq and every week to her nephew in Afghanistan, and she had her whole house painted UK blue, inside and out. And when they all just looked at Mama, she said, come on, Nicolette, and took me by the hand and got her six yellow dollar store bags of grippos and the other and went out to the car. Told me she wasn't never going back to that school, and she never did. She didn't go the next year when we had another costume contest where we dressed up as famous Kentuckians. She just put me in an old man's suit and put gray shoe polish on my cheeks and told me to tell them I was Harry Dean Stanton and dare them to say a word about it. She didn't come when my group won the Young Problem Solvers competition in 8th grade. She didn't come when I won the Quick Recall contest in ninth grade. She didn't come when I won the pastry making competition or the entree competition or the pumpkin roll competition this past year in culinary. She didn't come this past spring when I went to prom with a girl from Tennessee and puked up my toenails and got my ass kicked by some boys from Turtle Top. And none of that bothered me until it did. Till this past spring when I made it all the way to the state culinary championships in baking. I'd turn the apple stack cake recipe my Aunt Tilda gave me into a lemon curd poppy seed stack cake that was pure beautiful. And once again, I was sure I was going to win. But then a girl from my own school accused me of stealing her recipe, which I know for a fact she got everything she ever made off television. But they took her word over mine because her daddy was a big shot at the plant. And her mother went to Nashville to pay $300 to get their hair cut. $300 for herself. 300 for that girl, and 300 for that girl's sister every time they got a haircut. And when I went home and told Mom, she said, I don't know why you fool with that stuff, and unwrapped another oatmeal cream pie and went back in her room to watch Japanese cartoon movies. And that made me so mad, and that was yesterday. But I swallowed my mad and got up early this morning because these women in Berea had heard about me and my cooking, and they had introduced me to this woman who was making her own gorgonzola cheese from her own cows somewhere down that way. And they were having a big dinner, and there were going to be cookbook writers and chefs from big restaurants there, and all of them would be talking about how Appalachian food had been underappreciated and how now was our time to step right into the light, right onto the center of the world food stage. And the Berea women who organized this thing wanted me to be a part of it. And not just me, but some of the others who were in my culinary club. And they acted like this thing might lead to jobs for us, or at least work. And maybe in time, the chance for us to do our own thing. Maybe the chance to make Kennard County a food mecca. A place where people who knew the difference came to eat. Come to our town to eat our cooking. To see what the new face of Appalachian cookery looked like. I thought about all that. Looking at the gob of spit-out macaroni and cheese my mother left on Granny Cora's kitchen floor, and I marched out to the carport and banged on the car window. And when Mama wouldn't roll it down, I banged on it some more. And when she still wouldn't roll it down, I banged on it some more. And when she did finally roll it down, I said what? Like she didn't have no idea what I was doing out there. I told her what I just told you all about the Berea women and about the woman making her own gorgonzola cheese and how this might lead to a job for me, and how it might make Kennard County a place where the leading industry was something besides jury duty, and I worked myself up pretty good, thought I'd give a pretty good speech, 
And at the end of it, I said, no, you got to say about it is that my macaroni and cheese tastes like ass. And Mama started the Alero. And she rested her arm in the open window and said, how much does that dinner cost? I might want to go. And I said, I can get you a ticket, Mama. Mama said, that ain't what I asked. And I said, I don't know how much it costs. And Mama said, it's on their website. And Mama backed the Alero out of the carport. And I grabbed hold of the door handle. I said, Mama, where are you going? Mama said, that gargozola macaroni or whatever, it's real tasty. And that cake, it was awesome. But baby, I don't know who you're fixing for. I don't know them. I said, Mama, you don't know who fixes hardly any of your food. Mama said, cooking for strangers is fine. I don't have a problem with that. And I said, what then? And Mama said, who you cook for is who you are. Even Snooty Dot knew that. I said, I know that, Mama. You think I don't have sense. And Mama said, I think you've got more sense than the rest of us put together. And Mama rolled up her window. And then she rolled it back down. And she said, what's that girl's name said you stole that recipe? And I told her. And what's her mama's name? And I told her. And when she asked where they live, I told her that too. And mama said, you care if I go beat their ass? I said, no. Mama said, give me $20. And I did. And mama said, all right then. Have fun in Berea. Leave me some of that macaroni. And then mama was gone. And I went back in Granny Cor's house and cleaned up the floor and put tinfoil on my macaroni. And then I called my friend Pinky to take me to Berea. Robert Geip, who brought us today's episode, is the author of the illustrated novels Trampoline and Weed Eater. He has worked at Apple Shop and now teaches and directs the Appalachian program at Southeast Kentucky Community College in Cumberland, Kentucky. This piece was originally presented at SFA's 2018 Summer Symposium in Lexington, Kentucky. Thomas Walsh produced this episode. Gravy's theme music is by Wendell Patrick and donor music is by Jazar, managing editor for this podcast and all other SFA media Sarah Camp Miler. To learn more about the music used in this episode and to see a list of books by Robert Geip and click through to buy a book by Robert Geip, which you want to do, right? Go to southernfoodways.org. While there, please consider making a donation to SFA. We depend upon your gifts to do our good work, and we thank you.